Sonic Statesman.com. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 76. Uh, today is the 20th of February. Um, tomorrow, when we go live, will be the 21st of February. Time is marching on. Um, hopefully we're all getting out of winter and it'll all start to be beautiful and wonderful fairly soon. Uh, this week, uh, so far, I have with me Mr. Non-Eric from Berlin. Hello and welcome. Hello, how are you doing? Having a good week? Yes, uh, very. Uh, maybe we'll come to the subject a little later. Oh boy, you're in trouble. Non-Eric, of course, is proprietor of MusoTalk.de, where you should go if you want to see German video podcasts of very high quality on music technology. There Thanks. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Mark Tinley's back. Uh, Mark, unfortunately, couldn't join us last week, which is kind of probably for the best because we had so many people on the show. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a juggling frenzy, but I think we managed to get through it last week. It was a good laugh last week uh, and enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure it would have been enhanced somewhat by by Mark's uh, participation, but there was, uh, there was a sort of schedule mess up. So uh, m- welcome back, Mr. Mark Tinley. Hello. I noticed something. I listened to the podcast in the gym this morning mm-hmm. and I noticed something. And that is that as I listened to the pod- podcast, I found it very enjoyable and, it, and, and all the things you were talking about reminded me of things that you know from the music industry that i've done etc etc and i thought if i didn't participate in this show i'd want to ring in and there have to be a good thousand people listening to it now right and the rest i'm going to stress an invitation to those people to say when you hear stuff that uh, you identify with pick up the phone and ring in because i would love to hear from those people yeah let's kind of we can we could get a cult a cult of people together who understand where we're coming from. It might help us feel less marginalised as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the world who's got an opinion on stuff, or maybe some may say over-opinionated, but I'm sure there's other people out there like me who would love to you know, have a say in, in stuff that's going on, and it would be great to hear from you. Yeah, I, I, w- I would like to second that. I have to sort out our Skype because the the London Skype numbers just got taken away. Um, oh, which was and they just said, "Sorry, we can't have these anymore. We're taking it away." Bye. And so I've got to get another one set up, which I just haven't got around to because uh, we just moved offices this week again. Um, although it was only a kind of transposition down a floor in the, exactly the same space, but we got a bit more room and it's a bit more kind of. Um, it feels a bit more grown up, but it's a little bit noisier. So if there's any kind of clip clopping or anything in the background, it's going to be, um, there's, there's lots of ladies working in the, the other businesses that, that uh, run here. Um, they do greeting cards and design and stuff and there's a hard floor and it sort of, you know, it does amplify rather, but anyway, um, welcome Mark. And, uh, finally, of course, uh, Mr. Richard Hilton from Connecticut. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Feeling pretty good, thanks. Still sounding great on your Apogee duet. It hasn't degraded over time. Still still managing to stay fresh. Seems to be holding up well under the strain of the podcast. Hey, I'm glad. Well, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure they should probably send us a few because then we can soak test them. If we all had one, then we'd all sound as good as you do. Well, he does sound very silky, doesn't he? He does, yeah. That's the nicest thing I've heard all morning. <laughs> and I've been up for all of 10 minutes. <laughs> no, maybe an hour. Okay. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I, I'd like to say, um, I saw this, this cook came in yesterday and I just noticed over at Create Digital Music, which is a great blog for kind of stuff to do with creating music, uh, run by Peter Kern, who's a top chap. We met him at NAMM and I had a chat with him. He's a, he's a great journalist and he's finally kind of got to the point where he's got to get some some kind of financial support for, for the, the website. So he's written a really interesting piece and sort of is accepting PayPal and donations and stuff to try and keep things going. So uh, we wish him the best of luck. And if you enjoy that blog, um, head on over there and give him some money. I think Sonic State will probably chip in or something, or maybe we can figure out a way to uh, get him to sell us his soul. But <laughs> I'm sure he won't. He's a very, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, integrity, has great integrity, and uh, I'm sure he wouldn't accept any anything untoward but please do get over there and uh, and help Mac because uh, it's a great resource oh yeah this week you know i was talking about my macbook pro kind of i was worried about the internal drive i actually mm. now have installed the 250 internal i did it on sunday because i came into work on sunday because i took a few days off this week for um because it's it's half term so i've got um, looking after my daughter and uh, yeah i put it in it took about i don't know 20 30 minutes and i did it and it worked I'm so pleased. And now I've got 100, 120 spare gigs on my internal drive. I feel, I feel like I've moved house, you know, and I've got an extra room but, or something. But this will only last a couple of weeks. Nick. Yeah, okay. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now I can install all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, rem- I remember when I put in the 160 in my MacBook Pro, I just thought, oh, I'm going to have, you know, I always have this spare space to play with. And now I'm always down to 10 gigs free. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah, I can see that happening. But um, this was a, a slightly difficult situation because my internal drive had a boot camp partition on it. Okay. And obviously, as we know, you can't reinstall boot camp unless you get leopard because the beta has expired. So you can't repartition a drive if you're still in Tiger. So ah. I use something called Copycat X, which is a device cloner under OS X, and it, dev- it cloned the device onto the bigger drive, and then I use something called iPartition to, um, to grab some more, uh, to, 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 free, you know, to create another partition, sort of the other side of the boot camp um, partition. Uh, the boot camp partition is still intact, and Windows will recognize it. So if anyone's in the same boat, that's what you need to do. And you're still too scared to move to Leopard? Well, I don't see any point. I mean, why do I need to move to Leopard? I've got, you know, the things I use it for, I need it to work, and I don't really need anything that Leopard's got to offer that yeah. I can think of. Because yeah. I think there's also a couple of real problems with the integrated audio recording. I think they cha- I read something on Create Digital, I think, right. uh, where they're saying, oh, beware, because uh, Apple changed a lot of stuff. And that would actually affect us, right, Nick? Recording yeah, because, I mean, that, that's the thing, recording like- podcasts and, you know, doing remote interviews and things, you know, we're kind of pushing. We're at the sort of the, the leading edge, I suppose. I mean, without trying to sound too ground of, of using what this software is capable for. So, you know, generally we're the people that would suffer from any kind of changes in that thing. So, yeah, I'm not going to be upgrading any time soon until there's something that I really, really must have that's on Leopard, I would say. Mm. Well, but, I think I saw on Ableton's website where they say that Apple's changes that they've made have allowed them to do some greater things with their audio engine as well, though. So, no, oh, yeah. poor marketing. Marketing scam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I heard that they just, they, don't, they revamped the uh, audio engine and maybe that was, right. you know, that was part of what they could achieve more easily with Le- under Leopard. You know, it's possible, I suppose. Well, well that brings back memories, uh, sore memories of um, the rumors that I and others were spreading uh, prior to the launch of Logic 8, where there was this discussion about how this great new 64-bit QuickTime engine would enhance all the audio on the, on the, on the Mac, which was bollocks. Yes, I think that's a good word to use. <laughs> but, yes, I suppose so. But um, uh, you've only got yourself to blame for speculating. Yeah, that's right. While we're on the subject of uh, fun and uh, rumors and stuff, yes, um, there were, you sent me an email from uh, somebody from the Ableton forum who explicitly asked to have me on the podcast today. Can you explain, Nick? <laughs> well, apparently, because um, Hans, you did a, uh, a kind of walk through, kind of um, look around the Ableton offices, right? Which was yep. very entertaining, and I enjoyed that. I was watching it again this afternoon, and um, you kind of get a feel of what the company's like. You know what what color they, what color walls and floors they have, which I think tells you a lot about a, a, a company. And yeah. um, and you snaffled a screenshot of what looked like <laughs> some sort of vocoder type thing, and it's just caused a huge furore, and everybody's kind of freaking out, and going, "Oh, what is it? What is it?" So, um, were you aware that it caused such a a scene? And do you know what it is? No, not at all. Um, I know that I think there was like 60 or 80, 60, 70 or 80 replies on the Ableton forum on this. And I've seen um, people trying to translate uh, what I said in German into English. And people even blew up screenshots pixel by pixel uh, to actually identify secret new um, uh, features of Ableton 8, 9 or 10. And... uh, Basically, I'm, I'm really innocent because um, it was basically an idea that I talked, um, talked over with some people from Ableton at NAMM because I did a couple of months ago, I did uh, something similar at Native Instruments when they had their 10 years anniversary. And the idea was to basically just give everybody out there an impression of the culture of the company you know, sure. what the people look like and what the vibe is and what they look like. But the problem was... I, I actually, um, obviously, I was invited, so people there knew that I was coming over, but not all the other people, I mean, not all the uh, employees, they didn't know, they weren't aware, and uh, as I'm, when I'm out there, I'm always using this really small 
really old DV cam from Sony, which is so unspectacular that people are really, really loose in front of the camera. Sure. And so I was just, you know, following Claudia through the uh, office and taking some shots. I wasn't aware, but I actually gave them uh, the video prior to actually check it. Right, and, and so uh, they saw it. it was, yeah, it was released. Maybe they didn't saw it themselves. I think uh, the, the, the guys at the, the Ableton Forum, they're probably even more, I don't know, <laughs> greedy for new features, yeah. and they saw it. Yeah, it's got, a, it's got a big hype, and obviously I've got lots and lots of views of the video on my side, which, which is Which is all great, all good news. <laughs> uh, but it did look like um, it was, there was a kind of... Um, I think it's supposed to be a vocoder. Yeah, it looked like some sort of frequency-based display which had blocks and so it must have had multiple bands and some kind of um response overlay but that was about it um so anyway that was it that explained so thank you very much alex for pointing that out and i hope that's cleared it up um i'm uh, while we're on the subject of vocoders is it something that's um has a great part in any of your lives rich have you got a, a great need for a vocoder these days um haven't used one in a while but the the, the need for that sound does come up once in a while I have some good fun. I've had good fun over the years using them in various ways, but uh, it hasn't come up lately. What do you use? Have you got a kind of hardware well, one that you go to? Or? I've used the Rollins. I've used the Korg. I've used um, even software vocoders. Uh, I've used, uh, I, I don't think DigiDesign's thing is really properly a vocoder, but they have, I can't even remember the name, Bruno, is it? Rezo? One of the Bruno, I think it is. Anyway, I've used that. Um, I used Ensonics DP4 as a vocoder once. Uh, processed an accordion sound through it, and for the control signal, I used breathing in and out that, was, that I'd recorded and uh, played back off the Synclavier. thought that was uh, an interesting experiment, and it did yield some kind of result, though it still didn't sound like an accordion. Right. It's cool. It, it sounded better than just the sample, but uh, it wasn't what I thought of in my head was that in the before. 80s by any chance um no oh. no 92 93 something like that just sounds like one of those kind of you know extravagant studio things that one would do in the 80s with the with a synclavier and um and a sampler that's just me trying to make an accordion sample sound like something <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. and then and then there was a moment we were doing uh david bowie's black tie white noise and uh he, he just the, the i think it's the first real vocal song on the album and uh it had changed around quite a bit over the course of time, and uh, at one point he decided he basically wanted vocoder chords playing along with the lead vocal pretty much throughout the song. And so I uh, got to sort of play along with Bowie. Hey, cool. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty sure, I haven't heard it lately, but I'm pretty sure it appears on the record that way. I got that album. Is that the one that's got They Say Jump on it? Oh yeah, that's that was a cracking tune. Actually, I think I mean, from what I remember, it was it was kind of one of the finer tunes on the record, and it was really brilliant. Was it Johnny Dollar who did the drum program? There were some really energetic kind of full on beats in it. That's what I seem to remember, and a really um, good um, guitar line. What I remember about that song, it was day one on the Bowie session, and I'm you know I've them all set up and just raring to go and provide whatever, and he comes in and he pulls out this tape and plays. This recording that he'd done over a multi-track two-inch tape that had been played backwards in Switzerland, and uh, and it was the beginning of what became Jump. And my first assignment was to essentially recreate what I heard on <laughs> that the cassette. Thanks very much. <laughs> so uh, once I wiped the sweat from my brow, uh, I proceeded to, well, we got a two-inch machine in, and we sampled the whole thing backwards, and then I cut up the pieces I needed to make the bits I needed. I don't think anybody came in and did drum programming on that record that wasn't me. Oh, although really? I could be, I, well, nice one. May, there may have come along with his multi-track, there may have come along a, because uh, it had begun, it had been begun in Switzerland on, in some form. So I may have used some of what they had before. Cool. But I don't know that anybody, I don't think there was anybody just came in and programmed drums. Mark. I had six months, I put in six months on that album. It was really uh, an exciting time. Mark Tinley, vocoders, they work for you? I was using one the other day, yeah. I use them to try and make things sound like other things, I suppose. So yeah, because you can quite often make, you um, can modulate things uh, with other things that aren't voices, can't you? I mean, yeah, I was <coughs> I was modulate. I've got a Bosch electric drill which I got for Christmas, which I told you. I remember. You about. Oh yeah. Well, I'd recorded that, and I was modulating a scream with the Bosch electric drill. 
and vice versa and trying to make it sound like a screaming robot doesn't sound much like easy listening though does it i use them for sound effects hans what about uh, you are you kind of vocoded or not a not a lot but uh, do you guys know uh, that there was actually a vocoder plugin or still is for the tc powercore from waldorf and Gosh. that sounded really really good no i didn't know okay. that no no i didn't i've got a tc powercore somewhere um, a firewire one um, really? Yeah. I, the thing is, is the problem is with all of these power plugins things, I always kind of, you know, when I go and do a session, I take my laptop and I, anything else that I have to take just kind of makes, makes it more like, you know, a, a drag. So <laughs> I don't take anything with me Yeah. and they get what comes inside my head, which is probably not, maybe I should take some more things and then I'd feel like I could charge more. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, then I used the Nord modular, uh, for some. Oh, yeah. Work. That's wicked. I love that thing. Yeah, it's got some nice vocoding stuff in there. I remember um, I used an EMS uh, vocoder. It's like a rack mount thing, and it had um, it had a parameter on it called stuff. I seem to remember, and it had really? uh, yeah, and something <clears throat> like squelch. It was a bit like a CB device, it, but that was quite cool. I used it on um, <laughs> uh, a drum track modulating something else. I can't remember now, but it, that's what I used to use it on beats, and it, it, it sounded. It was really kind of. Had a lot of bands, but so it, you could get some quite interesting stuff on it. But don't find the call for it a lot. I suppose um, there might be call for it now because there's all that sort of heavily synthesized type vocal sound, which is, I suppose, you can achieve by something like auto tune, or if you've got a really high resolution vocoder, you can get the same sort of effect. Well, let's face it, that's what Melodyne is, isn't it? It's just a vocoder. Oh, I don't know about uh, that. It is. I mean, in what you ultimately end up hearing, you might consider that it could be that, but it's it's a lot more besides. I think that's a little bit... Um, well, there's a lot more control than just note pressure and modulation wheel, isn't there? I mean, it it takes the vocal and strips it apart and takes all of the performance aspects, and then you can adjust virtually anything that's happened and make it change, can't you? So it is, it's a vocoder with a, vocoder with a very complex control... I'm the Digitech vocalist. Is a vocoder. It is really. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure, Mark, whether the guys from Ceremony are really like. <laughs> I think that's a simplistic <laughs> description. Hey, guys. hey, Mark, you and I used the vocoder together. I'm just remembering. I was at Nick's rack mount Roland thing. Yes, we did. I, didn't we? I recall a keyboard on the back on the on the equipment rack there. Maybe we were just controlling it from there. But it was the song "Nice," wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Could I could I ask him if it's not too personal? Who's the modulator and who's the carrier? Ah. <laughs> I think that the K two thousand was was uh, the carrier signal, wasn't it? Which is no, which way around? K two thousand was modulating their uh, a whole load of vocals you recorded, wasn't it? Yeah, it was either rack mount version of the VPC three thirty, I think, which mm. is a. Will work as a string synth in itself, won't it? Yeah, the VP three hundred and thirty is wonderful. It's uh, lots and lots of that though, because of wonderful strings. They do sound very nice. It's got a very specific and quite unique sort of symphonic chorus. I was uh, reading an interview on Goldfrep uh, here in Germany in the magazine. Is it true that they use a Yamaha O two R for mixing? Question mark. Yeah, um, not for the final mixes, but certainly for. A, a lot of the process on the way there because what they've got is uh, they've got an O2R which I've had for ages I mean I persuaded Will to buy one of those when he was just doing TV cues because it was a real drag to kind of notate all the sessions via his knackered old desk so he's had that for a long time but he's also got um, I think oh gosh I can't remember what it is it's a nice big old um, uh, analogue console which hasn't quite worked into the workflow so the, yeah the O2R is used for most of the tracking and certainly, oh. you know, some of the some of the bounces or what have you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. But not the final mix. No, I, I mean, I don't know whether any of the tracks um, would have been taken from the final mix because there's always a, a sort of mix done on the O2R, um, you know, to sort of say this is as good as we can get it, you know, before it goes off elsewhere. So I don't know if any of those made it on this album. Couldn't tell you. Okay, great. But it just goes to show, you know, it's not about the technology, is it? And he no. uses uh, Logic 6, is it true? No, Logic 7. Okay. My brother made his first record on a cassette recorder he bought from Woolworths. Excellent. When he was uh, 11, so that must have been in 1978, mm. I think. And, 
And, and Mark, as we are at it, is it true that the, the first hit that he had was all done on in, in Sonic? Yes, SQ80. Yeah. Everything, right? Uh, well, no, it had 909 drums. I programmed the 909. Okay. And then sold and then sold it to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sold him the patterns. You did it on yeah. Neptune's, did you? Well, the, well, uh, he did it sort of vaguely admit to me recently that he actually never really programmed anything else in it, and most of the patterns he used on all of his hits were things that I'd programmed. Oh, and I, cool. I hadn't realised that. I just sort of thought that maybe. he knew how to use it and had been programming away. But <laughs> so. maybe what you should do is release a mar- a nine oh nine plugin, Mark. That's just got all your killer patterns and sounds. Oh, if I could remember what they were, yeah, I'm sure I just I'm sure I just copied them from all the Chicago house records of the time, anyway. And then, but he also had an FZ 10M rack sampler with with uh, some samples from some of the house records of the time. Actually, thinking about it, so thank uh, you, Chicago. Made, uh, That's my kind of town. Yeah, everything was programmed on the SQ80. All the sequencing was done on the SQ80, and when yeah. he ran out of sequencer parts, he actually played the parts on top. Right. So he'd get to the point where he was running eight things and then he was playing the top line, like, live. Mm. But, um, I mean, Killer was recorded on about five tracks of a 24-track two-inch. I mean, it was, like, stereo 909, stereo SQ80, and Seal singing. That was it. Great record. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it no, sounds really good, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mark, you sent this in. Um, this was to do with the fact that if I understand it correctly, uh, basically um, recorded copyright or song, songs that are written have uh, a 95-year sort of lease of life. So if, if uh, after, the, after the death of the, the composer, is that right? They have a 50-year lease of life. After, they have a 50-year lease of life from the beginning of the copyright, as far as I know. I, but I thought that was to do, not the songwriter. The, the person who played it got the 50-year lease. But the songwriter gets longer, don't they? This copyright is a gun. It's a really, really. Uh, it's like a chain to a to a post. Oh, or something. ball and it's chain. Got, ball yeah. and chain. Cause yeah, it's, but you know, I mean, but but I mean, consider the options. Say, for instance, um, you did a. There has record. been enough money been made already in the past fifty years. Yeah, but you might I not mean, feel that way if you were if you were now kind of crippled with arthritis and this was and you didn't have a pension and that was the only thing that, <laughs> that left you that, that kind of your royalty checks were the only thing that kind of you know got you through the winter. I mean, I think that's kind yeah, of yeah. I don't see any reason. I don't see who is to say right. We can stop paying you money now, and you don't need any more money for this track. I mean, that person. Wrote Whoever wrote it, it might not be Cliff Richard that owns the publishing on that song, but whoever wrote it deserves to be paid for the song while they're alive, surely. <laughs> and, well, I, um, I would think that. I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 I think uh, what has happened in the last 50 years is we've always seen the extension of copyright go on and on and on. And what it kind of does is it kind of destroys, partly destroys our culture because every artist usually you know, takes bits and pieces from other artists from the past or whatever and puts it into something new. And it's a, the, the bizarrest thing, I think, is that Disney is always, you know, lobbying for extension of copyright while Mickey Mouse has been stolen from, a, from something that has been public domain, an old story. I think, uh, I think we need, in some ways, we need to reconsider the whole subject because I think everything... At one, at some point, always belongs to everybody after a certain amount well, yeah, of time, yeah, and it, it, it just seems like it's been extended, extended, extended. And what we have is that people who own those copyrights, you know, they they enforce it in such a way that you know that children are being uh, being sued for money and students, you know, downloading some old stuff. We should be able to download that stuff from somewhere, and it's in and in those. Uh, really, really long copyright cycles that really um, don't allow us to do that. Because, you know, let's face it, there's some music that is not being commercially exploited any longer and that it should be in the public domain after I, some I can, time. I can see that argument, but you've got to take the fact that these copyright arguments have come into force because of abuse in the past. So there are maybe a whole bunch of, uh, say, old R&B or black artists in America that got totally ripped off by either other people copying their stuff or got totally ripped off by the record companies who gave them, you know, enough money to 
to get drunk or whatever. Do you know what I mean? The, the way that it used to be done. And you can't do that anymore. And that's partly why these things are here. You know, it's also protecting, you know, obviously it does at the same time protect corporate intellectual property right as well. But you've got to, I think you've got to be careful on how you differentiate between, you know, the guys who maybe played on a record or wrote a great song and the publishing company or the mega corp. I was interested in Mark's point about how an artist should at least retain the rights for his lifetime, his or her lifetime. I mean, I don't know if you can just measure it by lifetime because there's no reason why you can't say that his heirs deserve a, a crack at, at that is in other words there's either something called intellectual property or there isn't and once we get into defining over what period of time it ceases to become your intellectual property well then let's say uh any given piece of software after six months while it still runs on your as long as it still runs on your existing os and in your existing computer platform is suddenly public domain i mean six months seems like a short period of time to me too but the point is that arbitrarily we decide that it's some length of time it's 50 years it's 25 years it's 100 years it's one generation's lifetime it's what i mean it's 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 sticky to me to uh, to say that the heirs of beethoven don't have a claim on his yeah. greatness i think what is missing one point is missing that art always depends on being able to um to 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 take the inspiration of something that's already there and mold it in something. No, I understand that point. I but, do. That, but in what way is that not being continued? You no, know, because you get sued once you use something that sounds a little bit like that old record from the 60s or something, or sample something of okay, it. Okay, all right. I well, mean, well, I, you know, really I've been of, there. You know, I've been there. I've sampled something, right? Okay. Okay, let's and hear I would, your story. And I would, and I would, say, <laughs> I would say it's fair enough. You know, if I use the art um, I argument, then fine. But if my art happens to go to number one in 15 countries, it's generating a lot of money. And if it's not for the person who basically the, the hook was taken from, then that's a little bit harsh, don't you think? It's just because I've decided to appropriate it in a more imaginative way than you did. That means it's mine now. It doesn't quite – I don't think you could right. justify that either, really. Yeah, but I think uh, it's, it, I think it's, it's two, uh, two, uh, g uh, two things that are important for something to be public domain at a, after a certain point so that we all can use it in new artistic ways to mold new new music or whatever. And at the same time, obviously, there is the right of somebody who's created something, which he most obviously was also being influenced or taken some ideas from yeah, yeah, somebody sure. who already had an idea before. So, I mean, let's face it, there is nothing like the original idea without everything that has been done in the past. You know, all the music that's been created in the last century. Point. And so I think it, we just have to find, draw a fine line between these two uh, uh, assets. Or what yeah, I, English, but I, I, but English I, is not good enough for I know, this. I know, I know what you're saying, but I, I just think it's, it's impossible to kind of say arbitrarily from a, from a philosophical point of view, you don't get paid anymore. I think that's difficult. We just need to argue about the limit. I mean, the, yeah, okay. then the argument could be it's forever. I don't think I set this up right at the beginning, actually, because <laughs> okay. because uh, what they're extending is the performing royalty, as you said, and I didn't read it properly. So composer's copyright does last the composer's life in 70 years beyond, but the performing royalty only lasts for 50 years. And what they're saying is that that should be extended because if somebody records a record when they're 17 years old, when they're 67 years old, they stop receiving a royalty for it. The recording's never going to change, is it? So right. if so, if somebody so Cliff Richard was very young when he recorded "Summer Holiday" and it was a hit in 1963, because and so by by 2013, he won't receive any more royalties for it. Why? Why suddenly on the you know the day 50 years after that record was released, should he stop receiving money from it as a performer? It doesn't. I mean, it should carry on for at least his life expectancy. Yeah, and that I suppose uh, no, no, that's a different. Um, that is a different argument because that's essentially just kind of you know the performance royalties are a different thing. You know, that's what you get for if somebody decides to uh, synchronize your record to the latest hit TV series. And you know, make a, a whole bunch of money out of it. You will stop getting any money. 
And that okay. that's not that's a bit you know that's not fair. I would say if you're particularly if you're in your late sixties or seventies, you're getting towards retirement age. You know, maybe you can't play that shredding guitar solo anymore, or <laughs> you know they don't want you playing uh, playing down the local bar or whatever. You know, it's like there's no more. That, that's it. You don't get paid anymore. And for a lot of guys um and girls that's that's perhaps all the extra stuff and it's not i don't think it's a lot of cash is it it's not you know you don't get much for for performance royalties maybe nick you should maybe explain to the listeners out there you know the different kinds of copyrights and <laughs> shares it because i think i know from my experience when talking even to uh, more experienced musicians they they don't really understand the different kind of what what the performing right is and what the copyright is and what the the right of songwriting yeah it's a, it's complicated but essentially um you write the song you get the lion's share of the copyright you know that's the sort of that's the the rendition so if anyone covers your song or anyone um wants to use recording a, a chunk of that goes to you as the songwriter um if you play bass on that record and you're a member of the musicians union and that record is used for synchronizing to video or um, it's played it's mostly video actually i think isn't it now it's a, it's a moving image you will get a performance royalty every time that record recording is used in some kind of commercial aspect so you know it's not a great deal but it is something um listen it, it, it's quite a sort of stodgy um topic this so um i'm not sure how deep we should go into it because it's kind of quite uh, also i don't think you get performance royalties in the u.s do you it's only a european thing uh, uh, oh, I don't know. Actually, That's on some point. level, we do. Uh, if it's you've got a total dunce at this end on this conversation, so I'm not. I'm not okay. qualified. Well, that's all right because you've got a total dunce on this end as well. So <laughs> between and us, I'm king of the none dunces. Of us know what we're talking about. <laughs> Maybe we should move on then because uh, we'll have to see what we can get out of that one. Because it's you know, I mean, I think it can affect us in some ways, and I think Hans, you're quite right about the. Uh, about the aspect of you know letting some of it go so that it can be reappropriated artistically, but I think that the, the 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 thrust of this particular article is to do with the kind of the old boys who played records in the sixties and seventies, you know, as a job jobbing musicians and whose whose sort of rather small income that comes in once in a while from this is going to be basically severed unless we um, increase the copyright length for performing musicians, and I think that's probably a good thing. SonicState.com Yes. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about the SPX90. The SPX90 was the first really affordable digital programmable effects generator. And the thing that made it so good is it had so many different things in it. Um, I, and I was just trying to think back to me what I used to use it for. I remember I used to use it live. Um, obviously, gated reverbs in the 80s were absolutely essential. Uh, and um, there was the also the, the stereo, mono, and left, center, right delays, and something called freeze in the studio that was... Uh, that was used quite a lot where you could sample something in and then trigger it from a, an audio input. And I think that was used quite a lot for drum replacements. I'd imagine that and must from a MIDI keyboard and from a MIDI keyboard. So yeah. I know I just happened to have this kind of inkling that perhaps some of our panel might remember it fondly or perhaps not, but the Yamaha SPX 90, uh, yet another one of these kind of brilliant Yamaha digital DSP kind of effects innovations that kind of Yamaha probably get forgotten about really now that there's all these other things, but they were probably the first and original. Um, Non-Eric, you sounded jubilant that I was talking about the SPX90 because I have a feeling that perhaps you might have used one. Yes, we did. And there was this special effect in there. I think it was a kind of a pitch shift. And we always tried to thicken up vocals, you know, slightly oh, yeah. tuning. And you remember that, Mark? Yeah. What was it called? Uh, no idea. But you could pitch one side of the vocal up and the other side down and oh, the, yeah. the original it was, one in the did, middle right? did it do plus or minus eight cents or something like that yeah very and it it, it was a, always used for that effect in our studio and it also it, had an octave a, a kind of octave shift as well didn't it there was another thing it did can't remember Ooh. but but you're definitely right it was like a revelation because at the time it was the first affordable thing that could do all these multi-effects it had pitch shift a and pitch shift b and they both work slightly differently and i can't remember what the difference is but they were so i mean because you used to sit, used to have them in live racks and there'd be banks of them in studios wouldn't they where people you'd use them they were they would get used a lot for um gated reverbs and symphonic was a real big one for it wasn't it i mean it was it was always used a lot symphonic i used to um use the early reflections Yes, in combination with another reverb and create really nice kind of vocal textures with it and and again 
get that gated sound, but from the early reflections as opposed to using a reverb and gate setting. Noisy as hell, I seem to remember. Yeah. I preferred the reverb on the Yamaha R1000, which was 8-bit and a long time before this, though, I have to say. Mm. And then... And then I don't think I don't think the SPX ninety reverb was ever very um, real sounding to me. And then no, it sounded it was that, it was dreadfully awful sounding because I remember I used to use it live, <laughs> and I used to have a, a particular setting that was saved in my configurations when um, when I worked at this particular club, and it was a, a, a certain type of reverb that I think it was there was a gated reverb, but the quality of the reverb was actually quite good. So if you took the gate off and you gave it about one or two seconds, you could kind of really liven up a drum kit. And I thought, wow, that's great. And whenever I, and then I remember going into the studio and sort of thinking, Hey, I can really make these drums sound good and putting them all over the drums. It sounded absolutely awful, but it just seemed to work really well in a live thing. I mean, maybe because it just occupied a, a specific frequency, but it did give a lot of life to things live. I think and when they brought out the SPX 50, yeah, I remember that. And a red with, display. And it had distortion in it as well. But it was basically an X, SPX90 with some distortion patches. I love that thing. I've still got one upstairs. And oh, yeah. the Rex 50 was the little sort of floor unit of the same thing. Yeah, that's right. But I've, I've got the most evil guitar sound that I can get out of that thing, which just sounds doesn't sound really like a guitar anymore actually but. rich were you were you uh, a yamaha world i mean i imagine because you you worked in a lot more high-end studios i mean did they creep in did you find them well my my snobbishness is about to expose itself now for <laughs> all um i it was a groundbreaking product uh, in terms of bang for buck and the n- sheer number of things it offered you in a single rack space where previously you would need a, a room full of gear to do the same things but uh in every case the room full of gear sounded better. So, and I happened to be working in the room full of gear at the time. So it, um, I was groundbreaking in as much as it offered a lot of stuff for the money. But I personally, I don't think, recall ever willfully plugging it in out of anything other than dire necessity. Oh, I'm not, not even, I need one more delay. I, show me a lexicon. Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> seeing them in, uh, in banks of... Um you know, banks of them in studios because you kind of use them for little, you know, when, when it was the fashion to have, you know, the kitchen sink mix. And you well, just, because you could, you could buy three of these things and have a whole ton of effects available yeah. for your money. If you're a small studio owner, it made a lot of sense once it was released. But as I say, in, in the studios I was working in, it didn't do any of these things that it does better than the stuff the that stuff was you there. Had, yeah. So, um, it was a fascinating device and I understood it's, point and i really do think yamaha was moving things forward quite significantly at this point in their development because you had all the fm synths out at this point and the sbx 90 was coming out they were coming out with those rack mount synths like the what was that the tz whatever it was the fm thing but even the single rack space four operator one with the multiple waveforms that they had i think it was tz something or other you know they they were just they were moving things forward yeah all right i know what it's called it was called a tx81z but that, I think you're yeah. right. It was kind of age, wasn't it? There, there was definitely a Yamaha age, and also at the time they had the whole Rev series: the Rev Seven, Rev Five, yeah. and the yeah, Rev. They, right, this, I loved the, them. The Rev One, yeah, Rev Seven, Great, and Five, yeah. Yeah, I used to uh, own one. Yeah. Which Great. one? What the Rev Seven? Yeah, the Seven. And do you guys remember the FB01? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what. That's the half half rack half rack FM synth, yeah. isn't it? Oh my yeah. Yamaha Yamaha Fest. Which Ooh. is probably a good point to put the uh, put the Yamaha advert in. <laughs> <laughs> Sonic Talk, sponsored by Yamaha Music Production, producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles, accurate professional studio monitoring systems, incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos, the versatile motif range of music production synthesizers, and the latest N-series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk. But, I mean, this was a real massive milestone. If you're into music production and obviously you you weren't one of these people who'd already made it or had access to kind of the real top end, this is because there was a big difference, wasn't this? This is some of the first inroads into... um, you know, you had a four track and you had kind of cheap delays, but th- there wasn't really much m- room between having um, 
the studio effects side of things covered and really expensive studio effects. And this was the first thing that kind of brought that whole processing world into a sort of um, a more affordable kind of home studio package. And it was actually, um, I don't know how many units of those they sold. They must have sold hundreds of thousands of them because they were just yeah. everywhere. The thing is that when that thing came out, everyone was using spring reverb in home studios, weren't they? That, and there was the Great British Spring, which was a huge, great big drain pipe with loads of springs in it. Yeah. And uh, there was a smaller one as well. I can't remember who that may be by Vestax or something. There was a spring mm. reverb that they did. And although the quality of the SPX90 probably, probably wasn't as good as anything I'd heard in the studio, it was certainly way, way better than any of those things. And for drums, to get close to that kind of big gated reverb sound that everyone was doing. I exactly. mean, it, would, I mean, it was brilliant for that. So, And there's one point I'd like to, to make here is, I think I even did a podcast on the subject, is that, you know, when I open up um, magazines, you know, music technology magazines, I always see these great studios with all this vintage gear and there's always this vintage talk and vintage, vintage everywhere. And it's, uh, people do forget that in those days, the stuff that they're showing in the magazines was out of the reach of 98% of musicians. Sure. And, 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 and uh, so there's still always this envy uh, about the, oh, the good old times. And I was trying to um, you know, make a point in my podcast explaining that, no, 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 in those days when all this great vintage stuff was available, only very, very few studios would have it. And the normal home recording guy would have to work with terrible stuff like the Fostex 8-track tape machine and stuff like that. And, and well, it was more basically- worse than that. I had yeah, a Fostex yeah. X15 4-track. Oh, I remember that. No <laughs> EQ on it at all. I mean, just nothing. Yeah. But it, 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 I mean, but having said that, you know, I mean, we're always going on about, um, about this kind of thing. It, it, the simplicity of it meant that you had to be more creative in the process. And, you know, it made you more creative with the arrangements. It made you more creative with the kind of choice of sounds and what have you. So, you know, that you've got all these interesting things coming out. I mean, you know, I mean, prime case, it's, it's uh, you know, the, that Prince album, the double album, I forget what it's called now, which was essentially a load of simple demos. But the songs and the sounds he used, there was hardly any effects or anything on it, but it just, what was it? Sign, oh, gosh. God. Sign of the Times. Sign of the, was it right. Sign of the Times? Yeah. You know. A lot of Lindrum. Exactly, but it was, I mean, there were still expensive things, but there was very little else going on there. It was. But that's easy today. You just don't use the features, don't yeah, use the plugins. I know, but it's so hard. <laughs> how? 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 Wow. They're there. You've got to use them because they're there. And you've got more than enough processing power to turn them on and use them. So how do you not use them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know that you were going to fiddle around with all the mastering plugins at the end as well. You're not going to like leave that blank and send your CD off to someone to master it anymore, are you? You're going to fiddle with it and try and do it yourself. And Which the same is, uh, with everything, like vocal sounds and bass sounds but, and everything. But that's, but that's partly responsible for the general degradation of music production because we we all think that just because we got the tools in our uh, plugin folder, we can use them, which is not true. I mean, it takes ages or a lifetime to even uh, comprehend how a multiband compressor works. You don't need to know that. You just go, I'm a man, I'm singing, I'm in Logic 8, channel strip, preference, male rock vocal, switch it on, (laughs) and I sound really good through that. But how do you know who set that up, you know? It could have been just some kid who just randomly named a load of presets because it was Friday afternoon and he had to get out of the office and wanted to go surfing. Uh, Maybe it was, but it does make me sound good with very little (laughs) tweaking. I mean, I put male rock vocal on and I sound rock. You sound like a male (laughs) rocker. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. So we should celebrate the fact that the Yamaha SPX90 existed and allowed us to get to this stage because, Absolutely. you know, we do have lots of benefits from all of the, the, the technology that has come forward. And I would agree, yes, it's more available to everybody. And in some ways, it's actually harder to sound a bit different because it's easy for everybody to sound the same because we're all using the same presets or it's very easy for us to use the same presets. That's basically we even... If we're using Logic 8 and everybody's using the same synthesizer presets, this will be one, will be absolutely identical until to the last sample if we use the same data, which was something that's totally impossible in the good old analog days because even the every 
808 drum machine would sound different. Yeah. Because we were talking about magazines last week, and um, I got an email from a chap called Michael Dahl, I think I've pronounced that right, who said the one fantastic mag that he subscribed to is called Tapop. And it's a creative recording magazine. Uh, subscriptions are free, and it's fantastic. And you can check it out here at tapeop.com. That's quite a big mag in the States, isn't it, Rich, I think? Uh, yeah, it's got its following. You do see it in the studios that are left. <laughs> yeah. I think there, there are no more tape operators. Yeah, right? I bet right. perhaps you're right. Perhaps you're right. But I went out and checked it out, and you can get the sort of PDFs of it online, and it's free. You know, there's no subscription or anything. And there was quite an interesting article, uh, just an interview with Peter Gabriel in the – I remember we talked about the shed at the AAS show, which was, you know, you could buy his shed and have it put, you know, trans- transported SSL recording writing studio into your backyard. And there's an interview with him in that, and that's quite good. He's sort of quite candid about uh, his thoughts of various things, technology and what have you. And, and so, you know, I'll say that's a good magazine as well. It's one that I'd missed. But we did, I tell you what, the, the talk that we had last week about um, the whole thing about print media generated many, many emails, um, more than usual. Um, so obviously that's kind of quite a contentious subject and people have a lot of opinions about it. So um, that was a good one. As Mark said earlier on, do keep them coming because it's always good to hear from people. I mean, we would like to encourage a bit more interactivity. After all, this is the age of the internet. Yeah, bring in. Ring in as well. Well, when you get your Skype number fixed, ring America. It doesn't cost anything. No, exactly. <laughs> just you. We'll just re- use the Skype answer phone. Well, Sonic- Skype is free, isn't it? Exactly. It's the handle Sonic Talk, and there's an answer phone there, twenty four hours a day that you can just leave anything you like that, um, and we'll endeavour to play it on the show. Um, well, shall we call it a King Sonny, as the in the immortal words of um, <laughs> I don't know who coined that one. That's King Sonny a day. Um, so it's a sort of Cockney <laughs> rhyming slang, sort of African rhyming slang, or something. Anyway, but uh, how's the sales of the um, of the Huntington Male Voice Choir going? Have you had any hits ah, on MySpace? Well, yes, I was about to mention this. I've, I have now set up a MySpace site for it, so I'll send you the link to that. Are there any particular tracks we should listen to? Out, is listen out for your your solo tones or are you uh i'm no i'm not solo toning at all it's all about blend definitely about blend and uh the tracks you should listen to are song of the cherubim because that's in russian oh yeah that sounds true. i've been singing in russian it's really good fun actually i mean i don't know what i'm singing of course but standing there singing in russian by phonetics and sort of knowing you're singing in russian it has a certain kind of vodkanic flair to it I yeah suppose. do you want to I toss your glass like into should, the fire yeah, afterwards exactly yeah i feel really good after singing in russian it's <laughs> but it's a beautiful it's actually a beautiful piece of music as well so definitely worth listening to but cool, buy, well, the, I... buy the album to hear all the rest of them i guess ave, ave maria is also on the uh on the myspace and i put another one on i can't remember and i'll add more over time as more people come in and view. So come and ask to be our friend as well. They do sound great. I listen oh, to Oh, you've listened. I haven't had a chance. Uh, I'm going to no. go and listen straight after the show, and I'm going to play some next week, if that's okay with you, Mark. Or a little snippet, I think we should. Absolutely, yeah. I think we should. Um, Non-Eric, in Berlin, um, thank you for joining us. What have you got coming up next week, by the way? Um, I have coming up next week... Um, a video review of the Mackie Control Universal Pro, Pro Plus C4. Mm, that's going to be nice. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll most likely be recording uh, also a video review of the uh, Digi 003. Well, we'll send people over there to have a look. And um, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, Mr. Mark Tenley, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, we hope to see you again soon. I'm glad it worked out with your arrangements. Oh, it's all cool this week. Gina's um, working from home today, so that's worked out quite easily. Brilliant. Um, I've been attacked by a cat today. I didn't hear a thing. You fended it <laughs> off very well. <laughs> and I must say, my favourite, am I allowed to say my favourite magazine? Oh, go on, which yeah. Which isn't, isn't available on the internet. Well, I suppose you could buy it via the internet. Is Brit Chopper. Brit Which cho- is Chopper. Brit, Brit Chopper. What we say, Chopper. I was thinking Chopper. Hmm, shopping. No, not Chopper. No, 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 shopping. Chopping, as in sawing oh. bits of motorbikes up in the back in the back shed. That sounds pretty niche to me. Britchopper.co.uk. It's well worth checking out, even if you're not British. <laughs> or a chopper. Or a chopper. Okay, well, it's thanks. Cool thank you very much for that, Mark. And Mr. Rich Hilton from Connecticut, um, have you got any exciting 
chic gigs coming up that you're going to be swanning off around the world with, or uh, are you done for a little while? Um, neither are we done, nor do we have anything imminent, but uh, there are things promising for the spring and the summer, and I'm looking forward to that. And in the meantime, uh, plugging along in the studio, working on some music together with Niall, and uh, having a good time. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Richard, did you see yourself in the in my video? I did. Thank you very much. It was fun <laughs> to watch. It was fun to watch, and I'm thrilled that you remembered and that you came. And uh, I have fond memories of being in Barcelona. That was great. Yeah, and and uh, I made a comment in uh, in the video, but obviously in German. And I said, "Oh, these guys are really good because they're not using ear, in in ear monitoring. This is a real live band." Was it true? <laughs> uh, we. At that time, we're not using any in-ear monitoring, and now I uh, believe the singers are using, uh, as of our last gig, the singers were switching over to in-ear monitors, and it interestingly changed the stage sound quite a bit. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Took a second to the get first, used to, but it was good. First gig I ever did, or the first tour I ever did with Duran, they all started using in-ear monitors in about 93 or 94, I think. We were rehearsing in this massive hangar in Santa Monica with the whole stage set in there and everything. And all you could hear was the drummer playing, but he was on such a big riser that he was way above your head if you were standing on the ground watching the band. And you could hear Warren's guitar strings, just the the sound of the guitar on the neck, Yeah. and Simon (laughs) singing. But as Simon was running round the set, he was making more noise, banging his feet, on the set so it's you could hear weird, this kind it? of weird twingy twangy sound this drummer way up in the kind of echoey ceiling of this hangar and simon singing and running around and, and they were like giving it their all full performance thing but with the pa switched out it just looked and sounded so odd yeah it's really it's weird. a very curious and weird thing but i mean seems to be the the way forward because a lot of people with the complexities of setups it's just you know, within ears and recall desks, the monitor setup is the is the key, and that seems to be the only real solution. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that we have come across what the guy I have found uh, I have found who is like the best monitor engineer I've ever heard, and I've recently come across the best sounding monitor speakers I ever heard, and now I just want them both all the time. Who's that? <laughs> then? Are you gonna name? You have to name him. Oh, his name is Marco Delatore. He's from Italy. He's fantastic. And uh, the monitors that I liked so much were by L Acoustics. Oh, and right. it just sounded magnificent in stereo where I was standing. It was, it was really just stunning. I had, I had a very similar experience when Goldfrapp were recording. They weren't recording. They were rehearsing last, last couple of weeks. And I went out there, and they've got the Digital Design D-Show rig. And um, mm-hmm. so they record most of the songs as they're going along. So it means that the sound engineer can then, while they're having lunch, carry on working on the set because you just flip it into playback mode. And he carries on because essentially he's got discrete tracks for all of the microphones. So it's the same thing as them playing effectively. Oh, uh, wow. Brilliant system. And then they were playing a song that I worked very closely on. And I was there to just kind of make sure they'd got all the samples into the drum, you know, triggers and what have you. And he was playing it along and he had the, um, uh, he had the, 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 the album stereo master alongside what was coming back off the desk. And it was, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing, but it was, it sounded astonishingly close. And I know it wasn't, you know, there, there was, there wasn't much stuff being played, um, you know, from the backing tracks. It was mostly the band and he'd obviously got it so that it, and it sounded really, really kind of on it. It was amazing. It sounded much better because it was bigger and wider and deeper and all those sort of things. But mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of quite scary actually. I was, and he, he all he wanted, he had a pair of Mackie, uh, HR eight, two fours as the main monitors and you just flip between them. So you go, yeah, there's the CD, there's the band. And it was just kind of, that is wow. really, I don't know if that's, you know, good, if it's what people want, but it's certainly achievable. And it must be very appealing to maybe uh, the, the production side of things who have spent all this time kind of making a record sound the way it does, you know, and, and being able to get a band to sound kind of close must mm. be quite satisfying, but really impressive. And those- well, the last the last time I saw Duran Duran, they were using a digital design console with the usual cast of plugins, and uh, it all sounded very much like the record to me where I was sitting as well. I mean, uh, it seems that being able to use so much of the same technology that you used in in the mixing of the record kind of contributes to your ability to do that. 
Mm, that would make sense. Yeah, Hans, I have a feeling you probably don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's it's not so much of a live gig. I mean, because some people think it's not good, you know, and that's they're perfectly entitled to that. And I think that's oh, totally we're getting with the problem is we're getting less and less informa- variety and less information on a, in in generally. I mean, if if people start copying the four bar drum. Uh, part that was best on 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 the recording session uh they just copy and copy and cut and copy and paste it all over the place we just in general we, we, we're getting less in a way although we get a better and more perfect and more uh, controlled result which is a general um thing that happens everywhere uh, but the more control we have and the more controlled music becomes we get less and less uh, variation in information but well, the problem, there's a problem with that, though, as well. And the problem is that people's ears are being trained to listen to music in that way of everything is absolutely polished and perfected. So with there's less mistakes in singing, everything's polished out, and, I don't know, the drummer plays note perfect and the guitarist plays note perfect and so on and so forth. So if you're a not brilliant musician and you're uh, trying to get ahead and get somewhere with it and you take your demo to the record company, the record company are just going to laugh you out of the bloody of the A&R meeting, aren't they? They're, maybe, uh, maybe. Because they're start start practicing. Hear. How about practicing? But, 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 but surely, but if you start practicing, you're just going to sound like that highly polished, highly produced, highly edited thing that maybe you're trying not to sound like. And I suppose one of the main things that uh, brought that to my attention was I stuck my in-ear monitors in the other day, uh, my in-ear microphones, my binaural ones, and went to the choir and stood in the choir and recorded three pieces of music because we've got a competition coming up. And when I played it back, I was able to hear my own voice in context with the choir. Oh, and God. How was on that? My own, on my own, I sound really awful. And... and um, <laughs> I think you know, uh, I wanted to. I wanted to throw auto tune all over myself and <laughs> correct all my mistakes. <laughs> Maybe you I, shouldn't sing at all, Mark. Then <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's all about the blend. It's what I said earlier on. It's the blend. Yeah, the blend. I, I, I mean, I'm sure the guy standing next to me doesn't sound as brilliant as if we put him through auto tune. But when you've got sixty men standing all singing, yes, the air they move, it, isn't it? You just it just sounds really incredible the overall sound of it when you're well, standing yeah, there and i think there. it's the same That's thing with really- live bands because i mean you know some bands make records that you know do sound very produced and they want to try and reproduce that and other bands don't you know other bands can just rock and you go there and you come away really excited and exhilarated because you've seen a vibrant kind of full of life performance but most bands these days if they're doing any kind of major tour are using a lot of technology to help them out whatever anybody says you know it's it's not always in the same area it's not always you know all the same things at the same time but they certainly are i mean most mm. bands that i'm that, you know big touring bands are using in ears and I've, i noticed when i was um, at the concert from rammstein everything just sounded far too uh, perfect to me I mean, and then I saw a video, a live video they did, and uh, there must some of the guitar parts. I mean, there's something weird about it. I mean, it just doesn't sound like a guitar played through an amp live in a way. I mean, I can appreciate their sound uh, on the record, but but live, it, it to me it sounded uh, a bit sterile. But I must agree to Mark's point is that the expectation, the crowd expectation these days are different. And uh, if if a kid you know watch has been watching uh, videos on MTV and then finds uh, itself in a, in a in a club somewhere in Berlin and there's a mediocre live band playing, I think that's obviously an anticlimax. Yeah, I think the the trick is learning to distinguish between. The two, you know, that's what we have to learn, isn't it? How to? Well, how about listening to records from the eighties? Then, if you listen to any of the Blondie records from the eighties, she's got a cracking voice and she sings well in tune all the time. But if you listen to it from an with an ear of, if I was producing this, what would I do to that vocal? And you start hearing the bits that are out of tune. It's almost mm-hmm. weird. I mean, it's kind of. Mm-hmm. But yep. imagine, imagine Joy Division's Ian Curtis on the record being perfectly in tune. That would co- totally kill the vibe. <laughs> yeah, it would. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, some, maybe we should get hold of the master and do a do a version. <laughs> <laughs>
I like Cause... the idea of doing that. I don't know why. That's a really sick thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so you see how, how much you can ruin it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Painting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit like that, isn't it? Or, well, guys, that was very enjoyable. I'll see if I can get, work that in somewhere because I think that's got some good points in it. Anyway, sure. um, thanks very much. And um, w- until uh, next second, time. Uh, second time, bye bye. <laughs> yeah, see you later, guys. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, that's an end to uh, Sonic Talk number 76. Thank you very much to all our participants. And remember, folks, you can get in touch with us. Uh, the handle Sonic Talk uh, via Skype's got an answer phone hanging off it the whole time. We've got a couple of Skype in numbers, which uh, I will put in the show notes. Um, they can be found at sonicstate.com. Just go and check the Sonic Talk podcast. It's in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for listening. That's all for now. Sonic. State. Sonic.